Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for March 2016. I am writer Timlin and or Davis, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer, writer hyphen one year older as of Sunday. And our special guest this month is... Martin Pedler, writer hyphen different kind of writer, I guess. <laughs> Welcome, Martin. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being here and, uh, and happy birthday, Sophie. Thank you. So the films of March 2016, for various reasons that would actually see me at home in the first act of a Charlie Kaufman film, I didn't actually get around to seeing Anomalisa, his uh, new uh, stop motion dramatic. I don't actually know much about it because I haven't seen it yet. So you guys take it away. To, uh, tell me about it. I'm going to hand that one to Martin to start with. Is that because you haven't seen it either? <laughs> no, no, I have. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, um, to talk a little bit about expectations, uh, Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, was one of my favourite films of the last, God, 20 years. So I went into Anomalisa with very high expectations, which perhaps weren't quite met. It's based on a, a radio play he did, um, and now has been stop-motion animated by um, the same people, I believe, who did the Community Stop-Motion Christmas special. For community fans, it's very fun to see Starburn's name splashed over a Charlie Kaufman film. It could be badly described, I think, as another middle-aged man in crisis film, but I do think there's more going on here than that. Sophie? I would describe it as puppetry of the penis, but I am... Um... <laughs> more of a dyspeptic middle-aged man than any Charlie Kaufman character could ever possibly manage to be. Um, <laughs> I, th I think it's dyspeptic middle-aged man problems run deeper than the, the spectacle, which is, you know, it's an amazing creation, although I find the way that the puppet's faces are hinged across the mm -hmm. eye line extremely disturbing. <laughs> um, I did well, feel... Like it was a radio play for me because I did spend quite a lot of the film trying not to look at the screen because of the Uncanny Valley uh, effect, which just takes me really badly. But when it came to the crunch and there was the whole, I'm the only person who understands you, plus I'm a young, attractive female fan of yours, mm. I just... I felt like this was a film that didn't really know what it was about. Like it was so busy telling this white man's burden story that it hadn't really seen what it was doing. Yeah, look, the, we definitely have a long tradition of those kind of, what's the, the ultimate cliche, the university professor who falls in love with a young student who changes his life one magical summer kind of films. Um, I do think there's more going on here than that, if only because I think it's filled with much more self-loathing than those films normally are. <laughs> Um, yeah, it reaches, I, it reaches Philip Roth levels of self-loathing, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a cinematic experience I wanted to have? I felt like there was something kind of, and maybe this is re me reading into it too much because I watched it in the middle of seeing films at BFI Flare, which is the London um, LGBTQ film festival. There's something weirdly homophobic about it. Oh, that's interesting. The, it, the identification of all the other characters with this one male voice. And then even having to reject the man who, you know, holds his hand on the plane, that that can't be recuperated into a tender moment where, yes, we do share some humanity. Um, but at the same time, his, the, uh, his rejection of having a wife and child and aspiration to this kind of footloose life, I felt like there was that's where 
it could have done with some more self-awareness beyond the, you know, Philip Roth-esque <laughs> qualities of it. And and the, the puppetry made me feel that more, that yes, this is, and this is always a Charlie Kaufman story, isn't it? There's someone here who is wielding the puppets. They're, yeah. they're creating this story. They're making you... Um, go through it with these characters and that just started to niggle for me because it was so on the nose yes they're mm. puppets there is a danger i think when you have a dream sequence in a film like this and it really made me want the dream sequence to be real and for that to be the second half of the movie he has an amazing dream where he seems incredibly terrified of the idea that everyone is the same and everyone loves him too much and then he wakes up and i'm like oh that's actually more interesting than where the film ends up going i think um, I did love the puppets, though. They were so physical and so intimate. Um, mm -hmm. The sex scene in this is one of the most disquieting sex scenes I think I've ever seen. And I felt like I shouldn't be watching it. I was looking at it through my fingers while it was playing. I, I definitely agree. I, it goes a, a very different direction, obviously, from t Team America World Police. <laughs> the, the annals of, you know, puppet sex scenes in film are, are, are really short. But I felt that that was one moment where the film really came alive for me and its questions about intimacy and the relationship between two people and also what can be shown on screen in mainstream cinema and what can't, mm. that by using puppets, it challenges some of those censorship boundaries, particularly in, in the depiction of conolingus um mm. that you you couldn't necessarily with human human actors and i thought oh as you say about the dream sequence those moments when it floats away from plot or even characterization you want it to go in that direction more mm. and it's interesting you say as it being on the nose with the puppets one of the fascinating moments that separates it from the radio play is when he has some little um psychic breaks and begins to see the mechanics under his own face but I feel like they don't pursue that enough either. It sort of was an aside that they used once they translated it to film, but they never really explored it. Mm. Like it's too committed to realism, even though it's in this animated mm. genre. But that said, I did really enjoy it. I enjoyed it as kind of a really horrible version of a kind of before sunrise movie. Um, <laughs> just done with a man who hates himself and puppets. Sort of. Be before dirty, polluted sunset. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, an another film out uh, this month is the documentary The Pearl Button from uh, Patricio Guzman, who made uh, the incredible uh, film Nostalgia for the Light, uh, which was a documentary that juxtaposed, you know, the vast and the personal in such a perfect way. And, and The Pearl Button does the same. It's about everything from the cosmic origins of water to the history of Patagonia. There's something about Guzman's films that just make me want to live in them. It's a very zen-like quality that his films have. They're interesting, but they're also very calming, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a stunning film. Sophie, uh, what did you make of it? I, I'm just puzzling over um, what you're saying, because I completely agree. On the one hand, his films are mesmerizing. And on the other hand, th this pair, because the, the Pearl Button is kind of a follow-up to Nostalgia for the Light, are about genocide. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's not that I want, and I think probably the same for you, that to live in the world that his films are describing, but the world before that world. And I thought the yeah. Pearl Button was particularly... Um, touching and engaging at depicting the world of Patagonia before European colonization uh, and looking for these traces, surviving speakers of indigenous languages who tell their stories on film 
and then making those connections to, for example, what is preserved in ice and in water. So this idea that the land itself has a very long memory and that film can in some way tap into that. And it has one of the most chilling sequences that I've seen in documentary. And I think, you know, it's on a Joshua Oppenheimer level Mm. where he works with a young, I think he was a professor, to restage how bodies were bound in order to be sunk. Yeah, that was disturbing. These are torture victims. Um, They use a dummy, not a human body. I just want to clarify that. (laughs) And the absolute calm with which this researcher proceeds in detailing the uses of wire concrete blocks, the difference it would have made if the person was alive or dead, and the ends that the regime hoped to achieve, and the fact that they documented this It's so calm, it has none of the kind of Baroque fanfare of the Joshua Oppenheimer films, but it's really piercing. It takes it in a different direction from Nostalgia for the Light. There's sort of more engagement with living history and with really distant history. Yeah, I I think the reason I I found it so, I don't know, such a, a weirdly calming experience is that I wouldn't say there's a disconnect because they're very, very personal films, but... There's something about coming to it all after the fact and and there's a restorative feeling to it. It's like this it feels like there's a focus not on this language was all but wiped out, but on let's find what survives of this language and there's something very they're beautiful about finding whatever he can. Does that make any sort of sense? I don't know. Yeah, and it links to the pearl button of the title, which I don't I don't think we should spoiler. Mm what the pearl button is it's part of the mystery the film unfolds but the idea of something that seems very delicate very fragile that can survive that has this real physical presence and somehow the film magically manages to have that Mm. but (laughs) it's pretty different from our third film yeah switching tracks entirely um batman v superman i can't believe i have to say v uh dawn of justice is it not VS? No, no, they're very clear about that. All the voiceovers say V. It's like it's like they're um, suing one another. It's just weird. Um, <laughs> the, like Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, exactly. Kramer versus Kramer. Dawn of Justice is a film I would not watch. I don't know. The and, and the thing about this film is that I was thinking about it afterwards, and we are prone to hyperbole. I know I don't consider myself really a film critic anymore, but I still talk about films. And I know that we're always prone to hyperbole to say this is the best, this is the worst. And I thought very hard about this, and I feel very confident in saying that this is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. It's so nasty and poorly made. And I, I, I can't remember a studio ever putting out a film this nasty or where 90% of the scenes could be removed without affecting what I'm going to call the narrative. There is no clear character motivation in any scene, and I have no idea why anyone is doing anything other than the fact that that's what they're supposed to do. That's what the logline says they're going to do. There's no ideological battle between these two characters. Lex Luthor has no clear objective other than he is generally evil because he's Lex Luthor. Perry White is shown to be the most incompetent editor on the planet. (laughs) Superman's parents continue to offer rational objectivist advice that has nothing to do with being a hero. This is an ugly, ugly film that I found harder to sit through than Salo. Wow. (laughs) That is the best film review I think I have heard in this (laughs) show. 
Look, at the risk of trying to treat a movie that's made $400 million as some kind of underdog, I've been a little baffled by the incredibly negative response. Now, I in no way am am claiming this is a masterpiece, but I did not think it was significantly worse than most other bad blockbusters. Um, And I thought it was probably better than Avengers Age of Ultron or Terminator Genesis or any number of other films. Um, Even though I think the movie, and I don't want to say Snyder misunderstands because I think auteur theory really falls apart when you're looking at a film with this much corporate Mm. investment. So Warner Brothers film really does misunderstand the characters um, as a comic book nerd from way back. But putting that kind of fandom aside, Lee, did you really think it was that much worse than these other films? Oh, God, yes. I mean, I, I mean, okay, I won't compare it to Age of Ultron because I, I genuinely love Age of Ultron. That is a film that's about something. It's about rebirth. I know why characters are doing things in any given scene. But I'll compare it to uh, Terminator Genesis, which I, you mentioned, and I compare it mm. to that because I did not like that film at all. I thought it was a disaster. And yes, I, th- I think this is significantly worse than that film um that at least i mean god i said a lot of things about that at the time which you know when now that i'm comparing it to a film like dawn of justice it now feels like every character had a clear motivation every scene (laughs) made sense like i don't understand what is happening in half the scenes like why it feels i'll tell you what it feels like it feels like a a a someone's hit the randomizer button on a montage creator and all the scenes are from what a and I'm not insulting you, because, you know, for liking this. I'm not casting aspersions on anyone who enjoyed it. If you enjoyed it, more power to you. But, but for me, it was like what a 14-year-old would think would make for a serious superpower, superhero film. You know, there's a scene where there's a massacre in an African village and people might think Superman did it and there's a terrorist attack on Congress and there's a story about horses drowning and Lois Lane is mostly <laughs> nude in a bath and the image grain is cranked up to comical proportions to suggest grittiness. People keep Woo! getting shot in the face. I, what is this film? What the hell is this film? It is deeply confusing you would make a film with Superman in it where he just floats in the sky and glowers at people. He's yes. Superman. A movie where Superman doesn't smile is just wrong to me. Yeah. Lee, by any chance, were you watching a Donald Trump rally on Fox News instead of <laughs> Superman v. Batman? Oh, God, I'll tell you what, they're about as likeable as Trump. I don't know, like, what, what, are the, what are the... I'm all for, like, R-rated superheroes. I haven't seen Deadpool, but, you know, you know, any type of story can be anything to anyone, so why not have the full gamut? Why not have a full rainbow of, of, of types? But when you're doing a film about Batman and Superman, and, like, I would not show this to a child uh, or, you know, really anyone under the age of anything. Um, <laughs> because I, there, there are no virtues being extolled that, you know, I, I, it thinks it's discussing what a hero is. Like, seriously, there is a scene in Congress where they're about to finally start discussing should tabs be kept on you because you're a superhero? What is your duty to the world? Should there be oversight? And literally, as they're about to start talking about that, a bomb goes off. Spoiler alert. A bomb goes I mean, what the fuck is happening? I, I do not understand what type of film they thought they were making. Um, like the I, movie has a real problem with, and, and um, Man of Steel had this problem too, where instead of having themes, it just has people say themes out loud. <laughs> so, so Lex Luthor in this sort of has a few monologues that really are just the um, theme pitch for the movie, but then the movie fails to actually, you know, 
have those themes underneath. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. When he describes um, Superman and Batman, like day versus night, I'm like, what has Superman done to this point that would, you would describe him as day? Like, what, what is this, uh, this, this Boy Scout idea we have not seen any hint of up until now? Mm. I don't know. He, fl- I, he flew in the sky. Yes. The sky oh, was true. probably blue because <laughs> it was an American sky. Oh, my God. Look, I am... Um, and this is a, why a, we should born Syria. Wait, no, wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> as a fan of these characters, as someone who's studied superheroes for a long time, mm-hmm. it is disheartening to see certain versions of them propagated on the big screen um, because the amount of eyeballs that will see this film as compared to people who, say, read comics, a lot more people will see the movie. And I do worry that these will become the kind of the official versions of these characters rather than just one man or one studio's interpretation of the characters. There's a book on Superman by Tom DeHaven where he talks about how over the years Superman has obtained certain characteristics that are now set in stone. And if you try and, say, write a story where he has the power to walk through walls, that power will soon be taken away from him because it's not part of the real Superman as we know it. Mm. And I hope that counts for things like Batman being so murder-happy in this film too and that eventually that murder-happiness will be taken back away from him. Mm. Comments on Wonder Woman? She, She looked great. It was a... Nice visual introduction to the character. She doesn't really get to do much else except, you know, set up the ongoing universe that now all films seem to think they need to have. Mm. Gosh, I'll tell you what, she has more than one facial expression, which is a, a welcome <laughs> uh, moment. Uh, look, I'll tell you what, I, I, don't, I don't mind that there are a lot of people out there who don't like superheroes and don't find them interesting. That's fine. What I mind is when those people are put in charge of making them. I'm, I, look, honestly, I know we're only two films into this new shared universe of DC, whatever. Look, I'm done. I'm out. And it's a shame because I was kind of looking forward to, to Wonder Woman, but I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll feel differently six months from now, but I, I, I just can't stand these characters and this world. It's so ugly and, um, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> you mean you weren't um, entranced by the scene where a character literally sits down and clicks on the teaser trailers for the upcoming films? Yeah. It was... It was so ham-fisted, it was like hands were, actually, hands were made out of ham. Like, it was amazingly well done. Oh, my God. If, I'll tell you what, the franchise building that is crammed into the middle of this film, not the post credit scene, but the middle of this film, everyone owes an apology to Iron Man 2. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you right now. Given that Batman v Superman seems to have brought us to new on-screen lows, why not just stay at home? That's our question for for this month. Specifically, stay at home and engage in some of the amazing streaming services that are now available. Here in the UK, we have BFI Player, uh, run by the National Film Organisation, the BFI, but also Curzon um, On Demand, which shows the Curzon Artificial Eye films while they're in the cinema, as well as old favourites such as Mubi. So I am all for pyjamas, sofa, hot chocolate that does not cost £4.50, and having a vast array of films at my fingertips, including new releases. It's it's certainly where we're headed. Uh, we're heading to. I think that this is inevitable, um, and it's something they've been trying to do for a long time. I remember even back in two thousand and five, Soderbergh's uh, film Bubble was released 
on cinemas, on cable TV, and on DVD simultaneously. That was sort of testing the waters a bit. I think Bubble, even for Soderbergh fans, is you know quite out there. So it probably wasn't the great leveler um, uh, to, to test whether people would accept uh, the same film in different mediums. But um, in 2011, Universal tried to release Tower Heist uh, to video on demand three weeks after its theatrical debut, and many cinema chains refused to show the film if the plan went through, and so they, they cancelled the plans. And so there's a lot of resistance out there. I think there's a feeling that cinema as a, pl- a thing you go to, uh, an institution, this is the, the last, this is the thing that will kill it. Sean Parker, who, who uh, started Napster, is trying to start up a thing called The Screening Room, where you watch new release films at home. You've got people like Peter Jackson, Steven Spielberg, and J.J. Abrams in favour of it, and James Cameron, Christopher Nola, and M. Night Shyamalan against it. It's a pretty contentious issue, and there are a lot of people still trying to hold on to that cinema experience, a lot of filmmakers, in the way that many of them are still trying to hold on to onto film over digital. Yeah, look, there's there's lots of issues here, I think. One is just flat-out piracy. So if you've got new, new release films coming in, streaming to your house, it's going to be a lot easier to get a top-quality pirated copy of them instantly. Mm. Um, that's something they'll try and stop, but I doubt very much they'll be able to. But as someone who's probably had a lot more transcendent movie, moments watching movies at home than necessarily movies in the theatre, I find it difficult to to think there's anything bad about new ways to get films in front of eyeballs earlier in their runs. Oh, more than 90% of UK cinemas now have digital projectors. So the likelihood that if you're going to see a first-run film, that you're going to see it on film, even if it was made on film, is really tiny. Mm. Um, I'm still a massive fan of the big screen experience, where it's a chance to see something on 16 or 35, particularly... A classic film. So I'm very excited. There's a screening of Medrin in Uniform, Leontine Sagon's film from the 1930s, at the Cinema Museum tomorrow, which is one of the most extraordinary places. It has a 30-foot high statue of Charlie Chaplin made out of Lego. <laughs> so for me, that cinematic experience, that big screen experience has become very precious. And the times when it's possible, you know, when you're seeing a film, when the director or actor are there for a Q&A, or you know you're seeing it on its original format, whether that was 35 or 70 or or video in some cases, that's really exciting. Or special events like the Overnight Film Festival, which screen films on 35, or the Tate's um, Apichapong Rosethical Sleepover, which is coming up. I wouldn't miss those social and cultural experiences for the world but if i can catch up on the week's new releases from the comfort of my sofa for a smaller amount of money and feel like okay i've watched half an hour of this i don't need to carry on i'm for that it would allow me to see a much wider range of films and feel that i knew what was going on with the 22 weekly releases my god that happening here (laughs) Um, But also, I think for films like The Pearl Button, which is on Curzon Home Cinema, that's only going to go to a very limited number of cinemas outside London. It's really hard to get that film into the vanishing number of independent cinemas. And if you live in a rural area, forget it. I mean, also, you may not have broadband good enough to watch it. And that's a a different question. I think when Bubble was released, a lot of people were there on dial-up going, oh, the first frame (laughs) is really interesting. Oh, like the second frame. And people are so used now to turning to the internet to watch stuff on 
YouTube or Vimeo, seeing clips on Facebook and Twitter, I think if it can get people to watch The Pearl Button or Rams, which we talked about last month, has been a massive video-on-demand success because it's the kind of film that you might think, well, 16 quid plus a $60 parking ticket plus... <laughs> £100 for popcorn. Oh, I don't know. It's about some sheep. But if you start watching it at home, you're going to think, okay, no, that was £5 or £8 really well spent. And Mm. you're going to tell your mates. And, you know, then they're all going to come around and you're all going to wear Icelandic sweaters and watch it together. And, you know, so it can be social as well. I think there is often this kind of, oh, you're such a Nancy, no friends. You're at home watching films on your computer. But it can mean that it's a whole family that can do it rather than spending £100 on going to the cinema. Mm. Or you're doing it with your mates. And I've I've really flipped on this. I used to think streaming was a terrible idea and it was going to destroy cinema, but it means that cinemas, particularly independent cinemas, can now really focus on events, you know, really doing event cinema, stuff that you can't watch when it's streaming. Yeah. For me, though, watching things at home, while I agree with everything you've just said, it does come with one problem, which is the quicksand of distraction. One of the things I, I love about going to the movies, going to the theatre, is that I'm forced to pay attention in a dark room and I won't accidentally reach for my phone. I feel like my attention wanders less when I'm sitting in a theatre than when I'm sitting at home. Yes. You are the good person who does not sit in front of me at every film I go and see <laughs> and checks their email and texts all the way through it. <laughs> I, look, I, I sort of agree with both sides of this and everything you guys have both just said, and, and that's why I'm sort of in two minds about it. I remember when I studied film in high school and, again, at university and made them, it still didn't strip films of their magic. What what actually demystified cinema more than anything for me was when I became an usher at a cinema. When I saw, quite honestly, I saw the cinemas with the house lights on and I'd clean up popcorn and, and these palaces suddenly became large ugly rooms and that made going to the cinema a little less special and I I hadn't really considered that before that that was such a a vital part of it going to these magical places but on the other hand access is important and to me it feels a lot like the same-sex marriage debate even if you're against it it's inevitable so just figure out how it's going to work is that am I the first person to compare these issues yeah, and I just have this vision of Bert and Ernie sitting on the sofa, you know, <laughs> in in Utah or Arizona or one of the states where the cinemas that were owned by Clear Channel banned Breakback Mountain. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And had streaming been around, you know, there oh. they would have been in their duplex in, uh, in Tucson and they would have been able to watch it. There you go. <laughs> and I don't know, that's kind of, I, I want to have both, I'm re- but I'm really lucky. I live in a city. I have hmm. some disposable income. And I know for, for people who don't have those two things, it's really frustrating. You can only go and see like Batman v Superman because it's on, on all 20 screens at your multiplex. Hmm. So the, it's not just the, you know, should there or shouldn't there be screening. It's I wish that distributors and exhibitors were doing things differently as well. But in the absence of that, let's hmm. have as much films in as many places as we can. And I think it's easy to fall into film snobbery here, and I'm not sure where the line between snobbery and just good watching practices actually lies. Um, I have a friend who recently watched all of Game of Thrones legally on her phone, and that just seems wrong to me, but she said she really enjoyed it. So who am I to say otherwise? <laughs> um, but there is still part of me that cringes when I know everyone's just watching stuff on their laptop. So is that snobbery or is that is that a valid concern for the future of cinema? Can't it be both? 
I was totally raised on video. You know, I'm a child of the 80s and watching badly scratched copies of Mary Poppins that sometimes had to be yanked out of the VCR and rewound, you know, on a, on a small television, it didn't mean that I didn't also fall in love with cinema. It means that I know Mary Poppins back to front and have a strange impression of some of it due to the state of the, the video cassette. But I, I don't think it's going to be different. And it may even lead some people who are catching glimpses of these films, which are less likely to be pirated, things like Pearl Button, and becoming curious and then finding out about documentary film festivals and things like that that have this aura of event and going and catching up with them. But, I mean, maybe I'm having you know, counter to my moment about Anomalisa, I'm having a weird moment of optimism. I wonder if we'll get to a point where everything will be released streaming for home first, and then if it does well enough, it will get a large event cinema release after the fact. Like, kind of the like, reverse of what we have now. Sort of like pilot season. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Maybe what we'll deserves release to be the seen first a, 20 minutes of what, each film. <laughs> <laughs> what deserves to be seen on a big screen might be um, something we decide later on in a film's run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they might just release a bit where, you know, Henry Cavill is clicking on teaser trailers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the future is terrifying. <laughs> so, Martin, please tell us which, uh, which filmmaker have you chosen for the Filmmaker of the Month? I have chosen uh, two filmmakers or one <laughs> two-headed filmmaker, depending on how you want to look at it, which is Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen brothers, who I'm amazed has not been covered on your show before. Yeah, there are, yes, it's, uh, they have miraculously been left untouched up until now. Because with two notable exceptions, which we'll get to later, I think their filmography is pretty astonishing. Um, and they've kept up an amazing level of quality over the years. Mm. Um, but maybe to start with, we could start with Barton Fink from 1991, as I have a kind of superhero origin story about the film, mm. which uh, I got it on VHS and watched it at home, and it reached the end, and I immediately pressed rewind and watched it again, twice in a row. I think it's the only time in my life I've ever done it. Mm. I think it was the first time I realized you could have a film that wasn't about, you know, universal soldiers or diehards. It was just about a writer and that that was okay. <laughs> Um, and it, it blew my mind at the time. And it still probably holds up as my sentimental favourite of all of their films. I should warn you that unlike your um, host who's recently departed, oh, that makes it sound like he died, has recently <laughs> left the show, I'm not a film ranker. I, I feel like it's like ranking your exes. It feels very uncomfortable to me. I used to hate giving scores back when I was a reviewer as well. Mm. So I'll just say that I love all my children equally and not try and put them into any order. Fair enough, fair enough. So Barton Fink kicked off this, uh, this the love of the Coens. I know for a lot of people, certainly my, my generation, it was sort of around Fargo, Big Lebowski, uh, when they mm -hmm. really, I think it was the Oscars of Fargo and the cult status of Big Lebowski that, that brought a lot of people over. And I think people have been waiting for them to have another Big Lebowski ever since. I was a little puzzled by the enormous cinema push that Hail Caesar, their most recent one, got, um, as though it was going to be a kind of huge good time comedy and not a Coen Brothers film. Mm. And I saw it with a very mainstream crowd who'd been given free tickets and they were totally bamboozled by it. And they had even, you know, FM radio hosts at the beginning saying, it's another film from those wacky Coen brothers. I'm like, wacky? I guess they're kind of wacky. But I think there are lots of other things too. 
I don't know, unlike, say, the Cronenbergs or the David Lynches of the world, they're very difficult to nail down. How would you describe the Coen brothers' aesthetic? Or they're kind of farcical, but not really. They're, they're actually quite difficult to sum up. Yeah, I, I tried writing down a few terms because I've been trying to figure out what it is they do because it's it doesn't it feels almost impenetrable, but it looks really simple. Like I don't I, like I've written down a few a few terms like affected simplicity and sincere irony, and mm-hmm. I don't even know if that those terms <laughs> make sense. But it's it's like everything's so straightforward, but they're doing something. They they love small town America. They love you know, just folks, but mm-hmm. there, there is something that they're slipping in under there, which is very funny, but it's not making fun of the people. Uh, I don't mm. think they're making fun of anyone in Fargo. No, I agreed. Feel, I feel like Hail Caesar, which I found a very uneven film, actually tells a truth about the Coen brothers. Well, two truths. So the first, which is my funny glib one, is that really they should be directing Muppet movies. <laughs> Hail Caesar is a live-action Muppet movie. Mm-hmm. But the second, and what I think I mean by that, is all of their films are set in cinema. Mm. So the way that the people in them speak, the way that they're framed, what they do with genre, which isn't exactly pastiche, the way that they treat the lives of people in small towns, whether you know that's in Raising Arizona very near the beginning of their career or A Serious Man, which seems so different more recently... They're sort of about people who live in cinema. They're kind of film characters as opposed to psychologically realist people. And they have this strange, fragile, febrile existence, which Hail Caesar, I think, plays really for broad comedy. But mm. Barton Fink, which is also my favourite, so I'm really pleased to, to find someone else who's on side with that in the ocean of Lebowski fans. <laughs> You know, comes the really comes the close to pulling the curtain on who are the pe- these people who create this strange world that's called cinema, and what does it mean, and why is it? You know, it's quite dark, and actually, you know, it's not sincere. It is always ironic because it is always a studio. Mm. So I don't, I don't really know how to express what I'm saying, um, but maybe what we were saying about the puppets and Anomalisa was making me think about this that all of their films seem to take place in film history as opposed to in real people's lives. You know, it's Mm. not realist. Yeah. Well, if you go back to early reviews of their films, kind of of Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, they get called out a lot for being cold filmmakers, kind of formalist people who love playing with genre but don't have any kind of identifiable human characters. Whereas I've always found them quite sincere in a strange way. Um, And you can especially see that in something like Fargo, which I think is kind of an achingly sincere film, mostly through its main character, uh, played by Frances McDormand, um, who's a wonderful antidote to the decades of films where to catch a killer, you have to think like a killer. (laughs) You have to think like a killer's killing. Um, And she just just fundamentally does not understand why bad people do bad things because Mm. she's just too optimistic a character. It's wonderful. Mm. Optimistic but not naive. She she doesn't really get taken advantage of. She's too canny for that. And Mm. and that's that's so key. And and, and I think one of the most important scenes almost in the entire Coen Brothers canon is the Mike Yanagita moment, which mm-hmm. has been argued over for 20 years. This scene, which on the face of it is, is completely superfluous, does not affect the plot, really, and uh, in, in, in like a significant noticeable way. But it's really about this guy who... It's just this guy that she went to high school with 
trying to proposition her and telling her this sob story at lunch and then she never sees him again. And that moment sort of feels like this the, the key to unlocking how they see the world and, and, and how they view their characters and what they think is important to their characters. Mm. I remember when Fargo came out, which I guess was 96, it got a lot of comparisons to kind of Garrison Keillor's mm. radio stories. And then obviously through that to what Altman does with those kind of big ensemble pieces and what the difference was between between Fargo as a Coen Brothers film and, and how Altman treats big communities. And I think even though they're so concerned with America. Part of what I mean by they're set in cinema is that this is, they're really Yiddish storytellers, mm. you know, and they're really concerned with the schlemiels of the world, you know, the innocence. <laughs> and it, that run from, you know, Raising Arizona, Boss and Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo, even into The Big Lebowski, although I think the dude is slightly more self-aware in some way of these kind of innocents abroad. Um who are journeying through the world and that doesn't mean bad things don't happen to them, but somehow they make it through. And that's what gives the films this kind of screwball feeling mm. and maybe make some people feel they're insincere because um, in art house cinema, we expect terrible things to happen to good people and then they suffer greatly, you know, and they become mm. damaged and hangdog and so on. You know, we don't expect someone who's a gay communist to proudly march onto a submarine and <laughs> disappear with the plot, which is quite frankly the best moment in Hail Caesar by a factor of a million and should have been the story of the whole film. Just that as a meme over and over again. <laughs> Gif it. You know, so like a serious man comes closest to that mm. and was mm. widely regarded by a lot of critics who'd been quite cold to them. It's okay, now they've grown up and done serious mm. cinema. You know, they put it right there in the title, and it, it also relates it black, back to kind of 19th century Jewish storytelling from the frame narrative with the rabbi who might be a dibbuk or not. Yeah. But I feel like there is something of that kind of shaggy dog story, which does often hinge on that, you know, a character like Marge Gunderson, who is this innocent who's just going to walk us through. And they do, there's stuff about Amer Americanness that they love, particularly food, there's so much food in their films. <laughs> you know, if you think about like the cereal all at the, in Raising Arizona, mm -hmm. um, the breakfasts in Fargo, yeah. the coffee in Lewin Davis, like there's this real interest in eating and drinking and what makes us bodies that work. Mm. Or get it's interesting you, you say Shaggy Dog, because I agree, but they're also such exacting filmmakers that those two things mm. seem like they should be antithetical to each other. And watching Hail Caesar, you describing it as a Muppet film, a part of the joy of that was just seeing them, um, you know, bang it out for the cheap seats and sort of go in every direction at once. And yet I actually have a book of Ethan Cohen's poems. Have either of you read this? No, no. I was reading about it though, yeah. Would you like a short half a page poem reading about this very topic? Please. We would. It's called I Am Finished. Ahem. I am finished. Quit fussing with me. Moving a word here, then there, then back again. Changing a line break, a comma, a dash. Fiddling with all my little buttons and snaps. Wiping my chin. Matting down my cowlick. I'm fine the way I am. Stop looking at me like that. 
um, which I think speaks very highly to the way they are so apparently all of the ands and ifs and ums and buts are all in their scripts. And to combine that with that kind of freewheeling farcical nature of stuff like Oh Brother Where Art Thou or Hail Caesar or even Lebowski mm. is quite an achievement, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's something Michael Frayn, the playwright, says about Force, is it's the most exacting kind of theatre because everything has to happen exactly in time. You can't change a word. You can't change a stage direction. You can't be an inch off. And that's definitely like the, the epic scope of some of their films. And the changes in tone as well, I think, are really clever, like both across their filmography, the fact that they could go from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou to The Man Who Wasn't There. Mm. But then the changes of tone within Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where one minute it seems like it's a bumbling Preston Sergis comedy and the next minute the Ku Klux Klan show up. Mm. <laughs> to, to handle that and that kind of microtonality, which often hinges on you know, one particular character cameo and a cameo and, and often John Goodman, um, he'll take us into the darkness. You know, that is superlative in terms of filmmaking. Well, it is that mm. mix of, of, of styles, that seemingly incongruous mix of, of completely different styles that, that one of the things that drew me to them was seeing Big Lebowski and it was almost this proto-Charlie Kaufman type thing where I, I realised, because I'd, I'd just been started studying genre, I realised I was watching a detective story, a Raymond Chandler story that mm. they just dropped this guy into. And it felt so meta that there was this guy who just wandered into the story he was never supposed to be in and just had to sort of fumble his way through even though he had no interest in being there. Mm. Um, and in those, those, that mix of, uh, of, of character and, and genre and, and the way they pick it apart is, uh, is something I find quite fascinating. They're very interested in storytelling and how storytelling works, I think, and the limits of storytelling. There's a little sort of trilogy of meaninglessness from 2007 to 2009, which is No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, and A Serious Man, all films which are kind of about the limits of narrative. So mm. No Country for Old Men, your main character is killed off screen, mm. um, as an aside. Burn After Reading ends with a character saying, get back to me when this all makes sense. <laughs> and then a, a Serious Man is poor Michael Stuhlbach's character just completely lost in this world, desperate for meaning, going to rabbi after rabbi, hoping to find something that will make sense to him. Um, that's how I made sense of True Grit to myself, that's after making those three films in three years, they just desperately wanted to do an old-fashioned Western where things made sense again. Sure, yeah. I was just going to say, some of the moments they insert into True Grit absolutely agree with what you're, you're saying, Martin, and lead them away from that very clean, you know, narrative of, of the original. Mm. Um, in, in some ways, quite movingly, so Heidi Steinfeld's character has more to do and the narrative rests with her in the end, which is different from Kim, Kim Darby's Matty Ross. But also those encounters with those cameo characters are much weirder than in the original mm. and are often about telling stories. There are so many scenes in their films where someone tells a story that's almost a Zen koan, a riddle that the main characters have to puzzle out and can't. And Burn mm. After Reading is like a whole film. I have to say that it lost me completely. <laughs> it's not one of my favourites, definitely, but I do remember John Malkovich swearing incredibly well. He's a great swearer. <laughs> he is. That's that's actually a film that um, I liked more rewatching it. Uh, I didn't like it the first time, but watching it a few nights ago, I was like, okay, this is. I see the the value in this that I missed. But even mm. so, I've been developing a theory, uh, and this might be completely subjective. 
that the better their trailer is, the worse the film is. Because I didn't, <laughs> uh, even though I loved parts of Hail Caesar, I don't think it, it worked as a film. Um, I, I think that the trailer for that is incredible. I've watched it a million times. The trailer for Burn After Reading is a work of art. Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers. I mean, love or hate the films. You know, they're, they're probably the least regarded of their works. And mm. I think, yeah, the worse the film, the better the trailer. And we'll, we'll post some trailers on the uh, on the show notes and you can judge for yourself. I guess we should go back and talk about those two as they are widely considered the low points in the mm-hmm. Coen brothers' career. Intolerable Cruelty, I don't think, is a terrible film. It's, it's kind of a middling, well-made romantic comedy of sorts. Yeah. Um, I went back to The Lady Killers before um, today and I would have bet myself money that it was better than I remembered. And I watched mm. it, and you know what? It's not better. It's, it, it remains terrible. And it's fascinating to try and work out why, working with their same team, their same cinematographer, same music, that they could have such a misfire. Mm. Um, and I think it boils down to... Years ago, I remember seeing the warning on a film that instead of saying um, contains violence, contains language, contains adult themes, it just said contains themes. And I remember thinking how wonderful that was. Oh, no, it contains themes. The problem with The Lady Killers is it it contains no themes. Mm. It's it's themeless. It just kind of plays for an hour and a half and then stops. Yeah, that's true. I think they should have just let the Wayan brothers direct that one. Yeah. (laughs) So I think I've spotted what might be the the ultimate Coen brothers nightmare, Uh, what, what it is that scares them. And that's the idea of the supernatural pursuer, the person, you know, the almost Terminator mm. figure of the thing that is coming for you cannot be reasoned with and cannot be stopped and is supernatural in its powers. Uh, I'm thinking Raising Arizona's Leonard Smalls, O Brothers, Sheriff Cooley, and of course, No Country's Anton Sugar. And they're, they're sort of increasingly terrifying as you go along and increasingly they become harder to stop. You know, I mean, with Leonard Smalls, it takes a whole bunch of uh, of grenades all at once to blow him up. Sheriff Cooley, you know, we don't know if he survived the flood or not, but he had to, it had to be a flood that took him out. These figures are just terrifying. The moment you're left alone in a room with them, you know you're in trouble. Mm. They definitely have a very religious kind of interest in the idea of hell and purgatory, I think, as well. Um, Barton Fink, he ends up living in the hotel as hell, basically, um, with, you know, the flames, the wallpaper peeling, being Mm. told that he'll never have a script produced ever again. Mm. A Serious Man is about a kind of purgatory. Even Hale Caesar's religious aspects I found quite engaging. Llewellyn Davis um, is another, he's in the purgatory of New York, he ends up in the exact position he started in at the beginning of the film, Mm. unable to survive, so it's hell as New York winter without a coat. Yeah. I'm not sure why religion plays such a big part in these stories, but it, I don't know if that taps into the idea of fear that you were just discussing. Mm. Or why it's specifically such an American Christian vision of... Uh... Yeah, well, as you said, A Serious Man is a very Jewish film, mm-hmm. um, whereas Hail Caesar was kind of a Catholic film. And I like, love the difference between the two, where he keeps going for confession and at the end he's realization is is making movies worthwhile well it's hard so it must be worthwhile Mm. the logic is that simple there's nothing as comforting as that in a serious man Mm. although the purgatory of a serious man is american suburbia you Mm. know it's kind of the american dream that was 
you know, has been exploited in, in so many films. So it still seems like a very American concept of what purgatory is. I, I, I'm puzzling on this one. It definitely contains themes. <laughs> <laughs> I, wa- I wonder if the relationship with cinema itself is that purgatory, you know, that you're driven towards this deadline, the fear of whatever it is that's coming to get you, which is probably you know, the producer that isn't you um, or the producer part of yourself and you have to complete it and then you go on and you make another one. So the, the kind of love-hate treadmill of cinema and they are, they've been amazingly productive. You know, mm. they are mm. incredibly regular. They've been very well rewarded for it, particularly in Europe where Joel Cohen has won the Cannes Prize for Best Director more than any other filmmaker, which seems amazing, you know, more mm. than Godard or Truffaut. And they keep turning them out and finding new stars like Hailey Stenfield and, and Oscar Isaac. I think they have an amazing eye for an mm. actor but and character actors that they cast in lead roles, as well as A-listers like Clooney, who they've worked with several times. Mm. What is disappointing to me, I think, watching their more recent films, is they've lost their really strong roles for women. Mm. Mm. There hasn't yeah, been... I was... I was noticing that on a rewatch of their later ones as well. I'm trying to work out what the last big female role was. Um, Burn After Reading had strong female roles. And also, you know, Hailey Stenfield in uh, as as Matty in True Grit, Mm. although she does get spanked by Matt Damon. She does (laughs) then hit him on the head with a rock, which I find strangely satisfying. Mm. Um, But within the Western, obviously, her role is kind of is really constrained you know she's mm. there between two two guys so compared to fargo hudsucker proxy raising arizona they've they've lost that screwball female waiting that i think was so even something like julianne moore's cameo in uh the big lebowski which mm. i think we have to mention mm, one yes. of my top three coen brothers moments <laughs> you know maybe they're running scared of the vagina <laughs> Which is weird because, as you say, you know, the you know the eighties and the nineties, they they had incredible roles for women. I mean, I I know obviously you know Fargo is the high watermark, but my God, I could, I could watch um, Jennifer Jason Lee in the Hard Sucker Proxy forever, mm. and and never get tired of it. She is amazing in that film. Or at um, least listen to her forever. Yes, <laughs> that 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 brilliant uh, Catherine Hepburn esque <laughs> screwball comedy voice. Um, we, we also need to talk about the music in these films because mm. I think they, they probably have the best ear for music or, or certainly the best collaborators because not only in terms of constructing music but the scores that they have. I mean, you know, scores for, you know, Fargo, the soundtrack for The Big Lebowski the, and the sort of combination of traditional music, you know, Brother, Where Art Thou and the way it's sort of reinterpreted through the characters in the film. Uh, and through to, to Inside Lewin Davis, uh, which might have the most beautiful collection of music in any film ever. I, I think that's such a huge part of the success of these films is that, you know, with their collaborators like um, Carter Burwell and, um, oh God, who else? Um, T-Bone, T-Bone Burnett. Burnett. Yeah. Mm. These, they, they just have the, the music that makes you want to go back. I remember seeing Oh Brother opening weekend and the moment A Man of Constant Sorrow started, I thought this is the next soundtrack everyone is going to buy. Like, I knew it's instantly, like, everyone's going to rush out and buy this CD. And sure enough, like, it, it was a huge hit. It won, like, won the Grammy for Best Album, not just Best Soundtrack. 
And the soundtrack for Brother became a cultural phenomenon that led to them making the documentary Down from the Mountain about bluegrass music. And I can't think of another feature film about white American music that has done that. You know, it really became part of the culture and they really, they followed it through and then, you know, returned to it in a way in Lewin Davis, picking up that story of American folk 30 years later and again working with with T-Bone Burnett. And I feel like, you know, I'd love to see another stage in that project as well. Mm. I think a lot of it goes back um, to their love of language and their ear for dialogue. They've always had such a passion for old-timey slang and the different cadences of the way people speak. So you've got all of the gang, the magnificent gangster talk in Miller's Crossing, Hudsucker Proxy, Big Lebowski, the way Lebowski acts as a sponge and kind of picks up the phrases used by other people throughout the film and regurgitates them himself as the film goes on, <laughs> to True Grit and their love of how cowboys talk in the imaginary mm. cowboy land of their minds, mm. which probably has no as bad as much bearing on the real West as Raising Arizona has to actual Arizona. <laughs> and the musicality of dialogue in Hail Caesar, like the would that it twere so simple scene is one of the funniest things <laughs> they've ever done, I think. And yes. I could watch over and over again. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. The, the dialogue, you know, they, they treat dialogue like music. And it does have, mm. a, yeah, and there's so much repetition. You know, you have, um, I don't know, like even, even with the kids, you've got the, the, the kids in A Serious Man on the bus who just keep repeating the same lines over and over. They're, they're swearing because <laughs> they're testing out how it sounds. And But every character, I think, or, or every film features several characters who have a few stock phrases that they repeat because they're not mm. quite sure what else to say. Maybe it comes down then to the, the my favourite repetition, which is from my brother. Where art thou? The question of being bona fide. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's a suitor. <laughs> in their ear for dialogue, which is so perfect but so stylized, in the way that they've worked with traditional music but given it this spin, in you know this these religious themes, but yet set in films that seem like comedies, they're pushing on this question of what is. What is bona fide? Um, what's bona fide for a story? What's bona fide for a cinema? What's bona fide for humans? And do those three things actually have anything to do with each other? Whether it's like the fairy tale ending of Raising Arizona, which I think everyone thinks of really fondly, the fact that almost everyone is okay in one way or another in that film, or the, mm. the really grim fairy tale of, of No Country for Old Men, where that's definitely not the case so much. They're also really resistant to ever saying what their films are about, not quite to the David Lynch level, but, um, and they work that into their films itself, you know, going right back to Miller's Crossing where he has a dream of a hat at Miller's Crossing and then says it's just a hat, it doesn't mean anything. And this does run through quite a lot of their films, this, this resistance to saying what films are about. One of the things I've always admired about them is they've never turned themselves into a brand. They've never been that mm. interested in doing interviews or really presenting themselves. They really have let their movies do the talking for them all these years. Mm. And they seem to, to resist the idea of being interpreted to the point where that, that opening scene in A Serious Man, and I don't know if I believe this or not, but they say they deliberately wrote an opening scene that would have nothing to do with the rest of the film <laughs> in any way. <laughs> I don't know if I believe them, but they wanted us to think that. And of course, they've created fake film critics who have done scripted commentaries over their films. You know, they, they've, they, they're parroting the idea that, they, that their work is so open to interpretation. Mm. I sort of want um, the twin gossip columnist played by Tilda Swinton to mm. do the commentary on Hail Caesar. <laughs> oh, God, that would be perfect. 
oh, the stories I could tell you about George. <laughs> in, in, in character, obviously. And they've been editing their own films under a false name for their yeah. entire careers as well. Yeah, Roderick James, I think. Yeah. There were rumours at one stage that when Roderick James won something, they'd send up Steve Buscemi to collect the award. <laughs> also, are they close to, uh, to starting a shared cinematic universe given the uh, studio in Hail Caesar is the one that Barton Fink is writing for? <laughs> You'd think um, Dawn of Justice style. We're going to start seeing some um, <laughs> people clicking on trailers for upcoming the Coenverse films. Well, they've been talking about doing the only sequel they're interested in doing is Old Fink. Um, but mm. they, they say they're just waiting for Totoro to age enough so that they can make it. <laughs> to start playing Gigolos. Yeah. Um, well, but then you would have expected uh, Mr. Fink to show up among the among the Hollywood Ten. I was waiting for that. I, well, I did keep an eye out in the background to see if he was there, but no. I'm. No. I just have Excuse one me. question. I'm really intrigued about the one film that hasn't been mentioned, which is the man oh. who wasn't there, which is mm. considered a real highlight. That is very sui generis. And Martin, I was just wondering, is it just not there for you? <laughs> Actually, it's one on rewatch I realised was much better and much sadder than I had remembered. It's one of their most mournful films, I think. Mm. It's one of their most beautiful films to look at. The black and white photography is just astonishing. But I think perhaps it was dismissed, or at least dismissed by me, as being just a bit of them playing in the noir sandbox and not so much a story of a, an empty character moving through an empty world. There's a really moving scene where he realises that he's alone in a house and the house is haunted because he's the ghost. Mm. And that's really stayed with me after watching it this time. They took the kind of reluctant character and made him a character who has agency but never seems to care about anything he's doing. There's almost a Camus-like character to him. That feels like an interesting place to end, this idea of... <laughs> You know, is he the sine qua non of their cipher-like characters who find themselves mm -hmm. in this purgatory? Is that the film that takes it to its greatest and in some ways most European art house quote-unquote extent? And mm. since well, then, then they went into these very buoyant sort of screwball films, which are accounted their least successful. And what do you know what's in pre-production? What's coming next? No, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, because we're recording this sort of right as Hail Caesar has come out. We uh, don't know what they're going to do next, but um, hopefully they'll announce soon because you don't want too much time to go by without a Coen Brothers film. I'm hoping it's going to be a sort of Eisenstein pastiche about Channing Tatum's time in the USSR. <laughs> no dames. Dance numbers. No dames. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Martin, thank you so much for joining us this month. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful to have you, and we will see the rest of you next month. Mm -hmm.